Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. John uh, chapter 4, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 4, verse 27, and uh, my goal this morning is to cover verses 27 through 34. We're primarily going to focus our attention on verses 31 through 34, and the title of the message this morning is The Jesus Diet. The Jesus Diet. We live in a day when people are passionate about the food they eat, amen, uh, even to the point of posting pictures of their food on, on social media. Uh, such people who are really into their food are called foodies. And if you are a foodie, uh, you're going to love this sermon because it's literally all about eating. Nowadays, there's also a lot of talk about different diets, and it's hard to actually keep up with them. There's the Atkins diet, the keto diet, the vegan diet, the South Beach diet, the paleo diet, the zone diet, the Ducan diet, and the 5-2 diet, and the list can actually go on. And what makes many of these diets attractive to people are the stories uh, surrounding them, compelling stories. Someone tells a story about how their life and how their health was um, changed and helped by a particular diet, and people hear that, and they they want that same benefit for themselves. And if they themselves find the diet to be effective, then they can turn around and become passionate advocates for that diet that has helped them so much. And this is a wonderful thing, actually. And in our passage today, we're going to find Jesus doing exactly this. Uh, He talks about a particular food that he is eating, and he talks about his eating of this food in a way that's actually designed to influence us to join him in eating what it is that he is eating. By way of review, we've been seeing in chapter 4 how Jesus is in the region of Samaria, just outside the city of Sychar. In verse 4, we learn that Jesus was wearied from his journey, and he took his seat uh, by a well to rest. And in verse 8, look at the text. We were told that Jesus' disciples had gone away into the city to buy what? To buy food. And it was while they were in town getting food that Jesus begins engaging with a Samaritan woman who had come to the well to get some water. And Jesus invites this woman uh, ultimately to drink from the living water that he has to give. Uh, He tells her about her five husbands and how the man that she is living with now is not her husband, and as a result of his insightful, incisive words, she perceives that he is a prophet, and she tells him so, and it's not long before Jesus announces to her that he is, in fact, more than a prophet. He is the Messiah. 
Well, we've looked at all of that. In verse 27, the disciples return to Jesus with the food that they would have gotten from the city. Look at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? As for what this woman does right at this moment, look at verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? In verse 30, we learn how the people of the city responded. The text says they went out of the city and were coming to him. So there's a lot that's going on right now. We're going to look at some of these verses in greater detail in future weeks, but for our purposes this morning, I want us to pick up with what begins to happen in verse 31. In verse 31, the text says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. The tense of the verb urging indicates that they were persistently urging, which means that apparently Jesus was not giving in to their urging and taking some food, which would have surprised these disciples. After all, Jesus was famished an hour or so earlier. One would think he would be even more famished and hungry now, yet he no longer seems hungry for some Reason, And we began to learn why in these uh, verses where Jesus begins to speak and give his disciples perspective on a meal that was occupying his attention at the moment. The irony of what happens in these few verses is that the disciples are initially concerned about Jesus, thinking that he is the hungry one whose needs need to be tended to. But in reality, the disciples are the hungry ones. And Jesus wants to invite them into an amazing meal that he himself is enjoying. And so all we're going to do with the time that we have this morning is we're going to Look at three things that Jesus says to draw his disciples into the meal that he is eating. Three things that Jesus says to draw his disciples and us into the meal that he is eating. And the first, we're just going to lift these virtually straight from the text. The first thing that he says is, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I have food to eat that you don't know about. In verse 32, this is what we read. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus is not merely saying that he's eaten already, nor is he saying that he will be eating, but rather he's saying that he is having, present tense, food to eat. In other words, Jesus is depicting himself as being in the middle of a meal, and he does not want the distraction of a physical 
meal at the moment. Whatever he's eating, it is so amazing that it's enough to make him forget about feeding his stomach in the moment. Have you ever been involved in doing something that was so immensely satisfying and captivating that you forgot about your hunger? I think that's, some of you are shaking your head no. (laughs) Like, no, never happened to me, Pastor. Well, it's happened to many of us, and that's what's happening to Jesus uh, right here. And look at the text. Jesus describes the food that he is eating as something that the disciples don't know about. Jesus obviously intends for his words to be, I think, a gentle rebuke to his disciples, but his words are more of an invitation than they are a rebuke. Jesus says what he says here with the hope that it would pique their curiosity about what it is that he is eating, and his strategy actually works. Jesus' disciples hear what Jesus says, and they do what I think all of us would have done. They look around and see no food, and they're thinking that someone must have brought him some food to eat, and they can't imagine who did it or what it was that was brought, or how they might have brought Jesus that food. So observe what happens in verse 33. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? They probably should have directed their questions to Jesus and asked him for an explanation But instead, they're asking each other, but all they're doing is pooling their ignorance, an ignorance from from which Jesus is happy to rescue them, which brings us to the next thing that Jesus says, to draw his disciples into the meal that he himself was eating. And here's the statement. There's a few blanks for you to fill in in your notes. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is exactly what Jesus says to them in verse 34, where the text says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is such an amazing and powerful statement from Jesus that it's going to receive a good deal of our attention this morning. In the first place, Jesus had a variety of words that he could have used in describing his doing of the Father's will. He could have said, my mission is to do the will of him who sent me. Or he could have said, my duty is is to do the will of him who sent me. Or he could have said, my burden is to do the will of him who sent me. He could have said to his disciples, don't you see I'm burdened and weighed down with doing my father's will? He could have spoken that way, but he doesn't. Jesus doesn't use the word burden or duty or mission. Instead, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And that kind of language 
ought to make every one of us sit up and pay attention. Jesus actually viewed the doing of the will of his Father as food. In part, this language by Jesus reveals something about his attitude toward the Father who had sent him. Jesus loved the Father so much that he felt like it was eating a delicious meal to simply do the Father's will. We all know how true this is when we're doing something for someone that we love, and this is Jesus' experience here. Jesus lived his life in relationship, in loving relationship with his Father, and he viewed doing his Father's will as the equivalent of partaking of a satisfying meal. Jesus' language here also reveals, I think, his passion for doing the Father's will. And even we talk this way sometimes, do we not? If we say that someone eats, drinks, and sleeps something, we are saying that they are obsessed with some task as if it's what they live for and what makes them feel most alive. And that idea is clearly here. Jesus doesn't just do the will of his father. He's obsessed with the will of his father. He devours it. He consumes it. He eats it up. He has it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's what he lived for. It's what made him feel so alive when he did the father's will. To say that something is food that you eat also indicates that you're personally finding enjoyment in that thing. And even in our culture today, people will speak this way. Um, when my wife, for example, sees an adorable little baby that some of you bring to church, she'll sometimes say to me, that baby is so cute, I just want to eat him up. And I've heard others of you women speak this way also about talking about how you want to eat other people's children, <laughs> especially the pudgy ones for some reason. And I, I, I used to find this kind of language unsettling, but I'm, I think I'm understanding it better now as a grandfather. But I've actually seen women grab uh, an arm or a leg of a baby and, and literally make cookie monster sounds as they pretend to gobble that appendage up. And this is actually really a thing. You can go on the internet. There's articles written about this phenomenon. And I know because I've researched it. But I've, what I've learned is that women who talk this way and do this kind of thing are actually paying a profound compliment to the baby. They're saying that this baby is a feast of delight and eating just somehow seems like the appropriate way to express how much they want to enjoy the child. And this is exactly the way that Jesus feels about the Father's will. 
Jesus so delights in his Father's will that he wants to gobble it up. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus says in this text. And this should be so instructive for all of us of any age. For many of us, our food is to do our own will, not the will of God. We think that if we can just do whatever we want to do, then we would be happy and satisfied. We'll do what other people want us to do, but it's kind of begrudgingly. Maybe God wants me to do this, I'll do it. But our real food is to do our own will. Some of you young people cannot wait to get out from underneath your parents' authority so that you can get out into the world and do whatever you please, as if doing your own will is what's going to make you finally happy. You don't talk this way, but your mantra is, my food is to do my will. And if that is the way you think, you really ought to talk to some of the adults <laughs> around here, especially and including perhaps your own parents who once thought exactly the same way that you think now. And they got out into the world and they did exactly what they wanted and they brought hurt to themselves and to others. This room this morning is full of people who came to discover how dangerous their own will can be and how much harm they can do to themselves and others by doing their own will. And they eventually realized that and came running to the cross to find forgiveness for their sins and deliverance from the tyranny of their selfish desires. And they will tell you that they're learning even still that happiness does not come from fulfilling their own selfish desires. It literally comes from being delivered from one's selfish desires and being captured by and caught up in the will of God, which is a far more grandiose and wholesome thing than our puny, selfish will could ever be. We live in a society today that celebrates personal autonomy and tells you that you will only find happiness by looking within and choosing to be whatever your desires tell you to be, whatever you want to be, and whatever you want to do, just do that. And they tell you it is only then that you will be living in true authenticity and find happiness for yourself. But think about how Jesus lived. Jesus was the Son of God, the second member of the triune Godhead, yet he lived his life in relationship with the Father, and he always did his Father's will, and he viewed the doing of his Father's will as his food that he ate. And amazingly, Jesus was the happiest and most authentic person who ever lived. Go figure. And he left such a mark on history that we still date our calendars by him. 
You live your life feasting on the will of God and you will discover the fullest and most expansive version of yourself. Take your cue from Jesus in a passage like this. If you live your life making it your food to do the Father's will, you will find life at its fullest. You will impact others for their eternal good and you will discover a richer and a fuller version of yourself than you ever thought possible. Unfortunately, we, we sometimes tend to think that doing the will of God, we tend to view like the will of God as something that's asked of us, something that's asked from us. But Jesus is helping us to see that doing God's will is something that God gives you in order to deliver you from the tyranny of self and to usher you into the grander narrative of what he is doing in the world, which is characterized by love. About two months ago, I came across a statement by a guy named Jeff Miller where he said this, listen to these words, there is more grandeur in five minutes of self-renunciation than in a whole lifetime of self-interest and self-seeking. There is more grandeur in five minutes of self-renunciation than in a whole lifetime of self-interest and self-seeking. That is so true. And to Jesus' point in our passage this morning, we could say it a little differently, saying that there is more grandeur in five minutes of doing God's will than in a whole lifetime of self-interest and self-seeking. Do you believe that? Jesus knew that this was true. And because of that, every day of his life was on fire with possibilities like meeting this woman by a well in a moment when he was tired and thirsty and engaging with her in conversation and ultimately bringing her into salvation. From the mundane to the wonderful, every day of Jesus' life on earth was on fire with possibilities, and you will find something similar being true in your own life as well if you make the doing of your Father's will your food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus says. And as you read through the gospel accounts, in particular, uh, John's gospel, you see how true this is. Write down these two references, John 5.30. John 5.30 Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was kneeling beneath the looming shadow of the cross, he said in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. In that moment, quite literally, the Father is putting before Christ his will, 
represented as a cup to drink. And Jesus knew that the contents of this cup would be bitter to his taste. And he recoils, but he surrenders and consents to drink this cup of suffering because it was the will of his Father. And we learn in Hebrews 12 that Jesus partook of this cup of suffering for the joy that was set before him. In other words, because he knew it would lead to his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father's right hand and would lead to an outcome of eternal joy for him and for all those who would be saved through him, including our joy, those of us who have believed in him. You see, the Father's will is food, but it's not always initially sweet to the taste. Sometimes it is the will of God that we suffer, and that suffering may initially taste bitter to us. However, God's will is always purposeful and ultimately always serves the purpose of bringing greater joy and refreshment to you and others and a greater weight of glory in the age to come. One more thought before we move on. Think about what food is and, and why we even bother eating it. We eat food because it nourishes our bodies, right? We also eat food because it satisfies our appetites and our cravings. Our bodies are made for food. We have appetites that cry out to be satisfied, and God has designed food with a variety of shapes and colors and textures and tastes so that his provision can meet us at our point of hunger with maximum satisfaction and pleasure. That's the goodness of God. We don't often think of food this way, but food is also a mood-altering substance, right? Consider how you feel when you're really hungry and thirsty, how cranky you get compared to how you feel while you're eating or after you have eaten something delicious. Paul actually tells us in Acts 14 that God intends for the eating of food to bring gladness to our hearts. And here in this passage, Jesus is literally saying that doing his Father's will is like eating food to him. Doing the Father's will does for Jesus what eating physical food does for us. It brings him refreshment and nourishment and satisfaction rejuvenation and pleasure. That's what doing the Father's will does for Jesus. Food also strengthens us, right? And it enables us to grow. And so does doing the will of God. So my encouragement to you would be don't sit around and wait until you grow stronger before you do the will of God. Doing God's will Today is the very food that you need to be eating in order to grow and become all that God wants you to be. If you want to grow larger and you want to grow stronger in Christ, then do the will of God by opening your Bible 
and reading it and learning even more about his will and then do the will of God and you will find yourself being nourished in the doing of the will of God. You'll find yourself growing into a stronger version of what it is that God wants you to be. Take, for example, William Wilberforce. As many of you know, God used William Wilberforce to bring down the slave trade in England. What you may not know is that from a physical standpoint, Wilberforce was no impressive physical specimen. He was actually physically weak and sickly, yet he grew strong in the scriptures and he became driven by gospel truth to champion righteousness in his day. And God used him mightily to topple the institution of the slave trade that many people thought could never could never be brought to an end. But listen to what the commentator William Barclay says about Wilberforce as he describes the growth of this man who did the will of God in his day. He says, and I quote, all his life, Wilberforce was a little insignificant, ailing creature. When he rose to address the House of Commons, the members at first used to smile at this queer little figure. But as the fire and the power came from the man, they used to crowd the benches whenever he rose to speak. As it was put, the little minnow became a whale. His message, his task, the flame of truth, and the dynamic of power conquered his physical weakness, unquote. I love those words, and so should you. You tired of being a minnow? You want to become a whale? Do the will of God that is set before you. Eat, drink, and sleep the will of the Father as Jesus did. Be done with lesser things and let the will of God be your feast. And you will find that it will nourish you and strengthen your soul just as food does your body. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, but this is not all. There's yet a third thing he says to draw his disciples into the meal that he himself was eating. Let's say it this way. My food is to accomplish his work. My food is to accomplish his work. In other words, my food is to accomplish the father's work that he gave me to do. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So evidently, Jesus' food was not just to do the Father's will, but also to accomplish the Father's work. That word work speaks of engagement in a specific task that requires an expenditure of effort and 
energy. In fact, part of our English word energy comes from this Greek word that is used here, translated work. And notice, guys, that the word work here is singular. Jesus' use of the singular here shows that he did not just view his life as a collection of random good works, but instead he saw every individual good work as part of a larger work that the Father had given him to do. In one sense, Jesus' whole life was simply one very large, multifaceted work. If there was one flaw in that work anywhere, the whole of his life would have collapsed into utter uselessness and we would all still be lost in our sins. The word accomplish that Jesus uses here means more than just to do something. It means to complete something. To so perform a task that it is finished and brought to its intended end. Many of us are good at starting things, but we're not so good at seeing things through to their completion. But Jesus was good at both. Jesus feasted on doing the Father's will, but he also feasted on finishing the macro, the great work that God had given him to do, one work at a time. And it was his vision of what that completed work would look like in the end that constantly fed and nourished his soul and motivated him to do everything that he did. As the story goes, two bricklayers were laying bricks. One was bored with his work and wished he was doing something else. The other bricklayer was excited about his work and highly motivated. Why the difference? Because the bored bricklayer was in his own mind merely laying one brick on top of the other. The motivated bricklayer was mindful of the fact that he was building a great cathedral. And his heart was already feasting on the vision of what the end result of his work would be. And this is the way it was with Jesus. He came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish one great work, inside of which were hundreds of thousands of smaller works. And that one great work was to glorify the Father by bringing salvation to sinners and bringing many sons to glory. And his food was to finish that work. And boy, did he ever. Consider uh, with me an analogy. Think about an artist who works for hours and days on a painting, first in big strokes, and then in little strokes, and then in very fine details. And as this artist progresses in the painting, his trained eyes 
look over his work, noticing ways in which smaller, more detailed touches are needed to bring that painting to life. Someone like myself might look at that very same painting and think, that looks finished to me. But I don't have a trained eye like the artist does. The artist sees things that I cannot see. He continues his work, continues touching up the painting and adding details. And as he does so, his improvements make perfect sense to me after the fact. Eventually, though, the moment arrives when the artist sees that there's absolutely nothing more that needs to be done. And he puts down his paintbrush and says, it is finished. And this actually ended up happening with the Lord Jesus. Jesus came to earth in order to glorify the Father and bring salvation to sinners. And over the course of his life and then his ministry, he performed countless acts of service in healing the broken bodies and the souls of people. Imagine how utterly beautiful the painting of Jesus' life would have looked by Palm Sunday. The whole world, John the Apostle says, could not contain the books that have, could have been written about all the things that Jesus did up to that point of his life and ministry before even the Passion Week. And if we were to stand with Christ and look over the canvas of his life prior to the Passion Week, we would have said, this painting is so perfect and so beautiful. There's nothing at all lacking. You're done. But we would notice that the paintbrush is still in his hand, meaning that evidently he isn't finished. To our surprise, Jesus would look at the unparalleled artistry of his life and say, this painting is lacking something. It needs one thing more. And then he lets himself get arrested and falsely accused and scourged and then allows himself to be nailed to a cross to suffer and to die for our sins. And it's not until Jesus is on the cross and about to breathe his last that John chapter 19 verse 30 tells us that Jesus said, it is finished. And the Greek word that Jesus uses there is the same root word translated accomplished here in John 4, 34. After Jesus utters these words in John 19, 30, it is finished, the text says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. His work was finished. Jesus' language at the cross teaches us that his dying on the cross was the last stroke of the brush on the artistry of his life. Only then was the painting done. 
And so keep that in your mind and then backtrack two or three years before that moment on the cross. Jesus sits at a well outside the city of Sychar. He's just revealed himself to a Samaritan woman, and she's now realizing that he's the Messiah, and she's taken off to go tell everyone else in the city and to spread the word about Jesus. And soon, many others from the city will be coming out to see Jesus. The disciples arrive with the food that they had bought, and they're trying to get Jesus to eat it. And Jesus responds to them by saying, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish his work. Jesus knew that the Samaritan people coming out to him would be believing. Many of them would be believing in him shortly. But Jesus also knew that his work on their behalf will not be finished on this day nor for many days thereafter. If these Samaritan people that he will be engaging with on this day are to truly be saved, Jesus would need to go to the cross and die for their sins. And it will not be until then that his work is truly accomplished on behalf of these Samaritans whom he will be ministering to in the coming moments. I'm so glad that Jesus viewed the finishing of his work as his food because my salvation and your salvation depended upon that. Jesus did not just dabble in doing the will of God. He devoured it all the way to the very last drop. He didn't just seek to do God's work, but to finish God's work all the way to the end, all the way to the cross. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all the text that we're going to cover today. But let me make two points as we wrap this up this morning. Uh, first of all, what Jesus says in this passage reminds us how he succeeded where you and I have failed, but his success can be ours if we believe in him. The Bible teaches us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Instead of saying to the Father, your will be done, all of us have said, my will be done. And this failure goes back as far as Adam and Eve, the very first human beings. It should not be surprising to us that the first sin in the garden had to do with a choice about eating. God's will was for Adam and Eve to feast upon every fruit of every tree of the garden that he had provided for them, but they chose to eat of the one tree that God had told them not to eat from. So rather than enjoying the meal of God's will for them, they chose to feast on what the serpent offered to them. And mankind has been doing the same thing ever since, as each of us have gone astray 
and turn to our own way, making it our food to do our own will rather than feasting on God's good will. But Jesus succeeded perfectly where we failed. He feasted always upon God's good will, and he perfectly accomplished the work that God had given him to do all the way to dying upon a cross to provide atonement for our sins, for all the ways that we have failed to do the Father's will. And the Bible teaches us that if we believe in Jesus Christ, not only will God forgive us for all of those failures and for all of our sins, but he will also take the perfect performance, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and clothe us with that, crediting that to our account. And he will lavish glory upon us in heaven in a way that is perfectly befitting to Christ's righteousness that has been credited to us. If, you have, if you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus, I would plead with you today to do the will of the Father and believe in Him. Repent of your sins and call upon the name of Jesus and God will be delighted to respond by forgiving you of your whole lifetime of sins and he will take the robes of Christ's perfect righteousness and he will clothe you in that righteousness and he will lavish his glory upon you forever if you will but humble yourself and come to Jesus and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. Another takeaway from our passage this morning is that all of us should feel strongly tempted, if we can use that word, by the language that Jesus uses here. We should feel the invitation of Jesus' words as he invites us into the meal that he is enjoying. He doesn't want to enjoy this meal alone. He's inviting us to join him in a lifestyle of feasting upon doing the delicious will of God into a lifestyle of accomplishing the work that God has given us to do, which we're going to see next week involves being engaged in reaping the harvest of those whom God has prepared for salvation around us. In other words, here in John 4, the will of God for Jesus was people. It had to do with people, engaging people in conversation about their souls and getting people to think about the appetite of their soul and to think about their sin and to think about him as the Messiah that they so needed. That was the will of the Father who sent Jesus into the world, and it's the will of the Father who sends us to do the same thing. Only as we do the work He sent us to do, we get to draw people's attention not to our own performance or to our own finished work, 
but we get to point them to the finished work of Christ on the cross and tell them how that they can join us in experiencing the blessings of salvation through him. As parents, we get to do this with our children before they are saved and after they are saved, pointing them ever to Christ and engaging with them on a heart level. As spouses, we get to engage with our spouses and evangelize our spouses by ever pointing them to Christ, continuing to evangelize them even after they're saved. And we get to do this with one another and with our neighbors and coworkers and family members, pointing ever to Jesus and seeking to embody the goodness of Christ in our own heart and in our own lives, seeking to mirror Christ to others and being the hands and the feet and the heart of Christ to them. We get to do the will of God and point people to Christ and to his finished work on the cross. And we get to have our doing of that being the food that nourishes our souls and brings gladness to our own hearts. I dare you to think this way this week. Read your Bible. When you get up tomorrow morning, read your Bible. That's the will of God for you to open up his revelation and read it and consume it and feast upon it. And then as you're doing that, look at whatever it is that he reveals to you is his will for how you are to live. View that as his will and view your doing of his will as your food that you are eating. And don't just do his will, devour it as food. And if you've not been doing that like you should have, then do the will of God this morning and repent. And confess your sins to God and bathe in his wonderful atoning grace through the blood of Christ. Make even repenting your food and doing the will of God who wants you to do that. And realize that whenever and wherever you are doing the will of God, you are literally eating the same meal that Jesus loved to eat. Realize that you are on the Jesus diet, which is so much better than the diet of Satan and the diet of this world and the diet of self. Amen? I know that even in preaching this message this morning, in so many ways, I just feel like I am preaching to the choir. I'm so thankful that here at Cornerstone, we have elders and deacons and deaconesses and so many of you in this church body who live the very thing that I'm preaching on this morning, which is why I feel so blessed to be a part of this church body and thank you. Give Praise to God for all the ways that you feast upon doing the good will of God in service to others. But let's pray and let's ask God to help us to excel still yet more in living this kind of life. Lord God, we 
even in being here this morning, this is, this is your will for us, and this is a veritable feast. Deliver us, Lord, from the heretical notion that your will is something that takes something from us or that's asked from us, and instead see it as this wonderful, delicious thing that is given to us to rescue us from us and to, to get us caught up into this far more wonderful story of what you are doing in the world and through time and eternity and how good your heart is and how good and wholesome your will is compared to the will of others in the world that we might try to please or even our own will that is so infected with selfishness and sin. Just open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see what Jesus sees and that we might feast as he feasted and become thereby all that you want us to be and be used by you as you desire to use us. Do that in each of our lives, Lord. There's so much power in this room. If each of us go forth and by your grace, we resolve to make the doing of your goodwill our food. Please help us, Lord. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.